So as most of you know, I am on hiatus from the podcast for the end of the year, and we have an amazing lineup of guest hosts. This week, Summer Stinson is sitting in to host an expert panel all about redistricting. As you know, the bipartisan commission that was supposed to redraw our maps based on the census that we have every 10 years failed to meet its deadline, and the maps will now be drawn by the state Supreme Court. There are tons of questions, and Summer is the perfect person to take them on. She is the executive director of the Economic Opportunity Institute. And with that, I will turn things over to you, Summer. Take it away. Thank you. Hello, everyone. We are here to talk redistricting today, and we have two experts on redistricting. First, we have uh, Margot Spindola of the Latino Community Fund, who is also a co-lead of the Redistricting Justice for Washington. And we also have Kamau Shega of the Executive Director of Washington Community Alliance. Welcome both. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Thanks so much for having us. It was a wild like couple weeks, I think, <laughs> for redistricting. And so wanted to start off actually kind of like what what was supposed to happen? What is the Washington law regarding redistricting? And this is redistricting both for legislative districts in our state and for uh, congressional districts. Summer, I believe you're an attorney, so you uh, you know will know that we have an open meetings act. There's a policy in the um, sort of like agreement in the redistricting commission where they must be um, making any sort of deliberations um, in front of the public. And so what was really disappointing, at least for a lot of us uh, who are organizing um, behind the scenes and also for the public at large, was that the commission not only failed to release maps, but they were making these sort of secret deliberation behind closed doors. And they would kind of pop in every so often, 30 minutes, and we would hear very vague updates. And so we um, are very disappointed, to say the least, that they weren't able to propose maps that weren't in line with community, but also that we're BRA compliant and among other things. And so that's kind of like the high snapshot of what happened. And um, I can pass it over to Kamau to go into detail. Yeah. And for people who are watching, it was kind of funny because what we were expecting was something like a legislative hearing where the people were making the decisions uh, about uh, public matters. will have those debates and make the case for you know, their side and their perspective in a public context where people can judge them based on what they're saying and what they're trying to do. And so people who are tuning in at 7 p.m., um, you know, in the lead up to that might have noticed that what had begun as a meeting that could have had public comment earlier in the day, there was a, small, a short announcement um, that was made where the meeting would extend until 11.59 p.m., November 15th, uh, that Monday, which was their uh, statutory deadline to uh, complete the redistricting process. And so all of a sudden the, the meeting got extended to the very last minute. And then when people tuned in, they were greeted with periodic uh, updates um, and a general blank screen because what was happening in the background was some of those commissioners were in person at a hotel in federal way that we've yet to find out about. And they were meeting in uh, dyad caucuses because of that open meetings uh, uh, statute that uh, Margo was mentioning. Anytime that there was a quorum, they had to uh, be uh, make it publicly available. Um, and so they were meeting by two, and I guess in two-person group chats or 
or something to avoid ever creating a quorum um, until they would pop in 30 seconds and say they felt encouraged about their deliberations. And this went on until they started voting at 11.58 um, and then seemed to suggest that they had made the deadline, but then started making votes after midnight. So uh, what ended up happening is they reached their deadline and they lost uh, the privilege and authority to um, draw the maps uh, for legislative and congressional districts and relinquish that authority to where it now sits with the state Supreme Court. And just to make sure everybody's caught up, this is the process that happens every 10 years in the state of Washington and in most other states uh, based on our new census information that we received uh, so that we can decide um, or, or make sure that everybody truly has an equal vote and has a vote um, so that our legislative di districts and our congressional districts are drawn appropriately and also in um, with roughly the same amount of people in them. Is that correct? And then the Washington State, um, what I learned during the process, and I learned a whole lot this last year <laughs> about the process, is that Washington State is interesting because we have some factors that the commission, which is four people, um, two uh, Republicans and two uh, Democrats, uh, all um, nominated or selected, if you will, by either the Senate Republicans, Senate Democrats, or Senate, uh, uh, sorry, uh, House Republicans or House uh, Democrats in our state, in our state legislature. And what uh, so roughly some of the factors, uh, what I found interesting is that we don't uh, delineate or number our factors in like priority order. They're just kind of all thrown out there as equal weighting and wondered if you could both just briefly describe some of those factors that uh, the um, commission and now the Supreme Court will have to uh, apply under our state law and also federal law, such as the uh, Voting Rights Act, which Margot already brought up. Um, I might need to get clarity on factors. Are you speaking more towards um, how they're creating the maps, such as cr making sure they're conti contiguous lines and that sort of thing? Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, I can name a few. So something, there's a couple of, you know, yeah, delineating factors that they have to consider in creating these maps that have ramifications for the next 10 years. And one of those things uh, was creating contiguous lines. Um, the next was uh, making sure that communities of interest were kept together. And I think this was a very contentious sort of factor because it's quite vague. What is communities of interest, right? Um, and how is race a factor in creating those communities of interest? You know, when we're looking at places like the Yakima map that was proposed that would combine Pasco and, and Tri-Cities, like, yes, there are Latino communities in those areas, but like, would you consider those really communities of interest? Um, and you also think about, you know, cohesive political like factions as well. How are we looking at those? So those are just a couple um, that at least we had a lot of conversations about uh, in our meetings, not only with the commissioners, but like as a coalition. Um, and um, so, yeah, those are those are just two that come to mind. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to your point, what they're meant to do is ensure that uh, we uphold the principle of one person, one vote. So if anyone is ever nerdy to look them up, uh, nerdy enough to look them up on um, the uh, RCW, which is uh, the state code, what they'll find is, um, you know, a couple guardrails that the commission had to abide by. 
districts have to have this, a population equal to uh, every other uh, district. And to the point, the, you know, the extent that they can, they have to try to keep cities and counties uh, together. That's not always possible because some, like Seattle, for example, are so large. But, you know, where um, they can, they have to try to minimize the amount of counties and municipalities that are split. Um, you know, that they're contiguous and compact and uh, make sure that the precincts, so where, um, you know, votes are collected at the smallest level are wholly within a single legislative district. And, and those are kind of the, the things that they had to abide by. And even before we get to some of the really contentious stuff that Margo was alluding to when it comes to the voting rights of communities of color and Latinos particularly, in the Yakima Valley, uh, some of those they seem to, uh, you know, run roughshod over because they were trying to uphold uh, more political uh, priorities like incumbents. So let's take like the cities, for example. There were tons of cities that were split by the maps that they uh, published after they had uh, breached their deadline. Some of them are, you know, as small ones like uh, Moxie, but they're also pretty large ones that could be in a single legislative district like Bellevue or uh, Redmond that are basically split because um, there's a lot of incumbents that like living in the waterfront property of Kirkland. And uh, in order to keep them all safe, you know, they end up uh, splitting these in the case of Bellevue, for example, a majority minority city, uh, Redmond, another one that's really diversifying that could have been, you know, uh, wholly kept together. Bremerton is uh, another one that ends up splitting three ways after there was a lot of community input not to do that and is in a pretty contentious um, legislative district over there in the 26th. So, you know, even at some of the sort of uh, minimum guardrails they were supposed to abide by, it looked like between the uh, you know, final hours of horse trading, uh, they they broke uh, some of those or at least really pushed the limits on what they were um, uh, supposed to abide by. And uh, are some other cities that are examples, uh, Kent and Auburn, I know I've done door knocking in Kent and Auburn, and uh, I'm always really surprised by how carved up those cities are into various different legislative districts. Um, I live in Seattle. I understand Seattle has to be split up. I get that. But uh, Kent, Auburn, Bellevue, Bremerton um, all seem like they could be much more kept intact. I think one last factor um, that comes up is the idea of encouraging the electoral competition as well. And thank you, Summer, for like highlighting that, because that's important, right? Like there are sometimes, you know, cities that, hey, it's going to happen. They're going to need to be split. Um, but something I do want to bring up is the, um, the RCW. I think it's the fifth factor that the commission needs to provide fair and effective representation to encourage electoral competition. But something that we saw, at least in this time around, is that that was, you know, sort of like twisted a little bit to to prioritize, you know, a particular party's like political interest um, and at the expense of communities of interest, particularly communities of color. And so that was something I really wanted to make sure folks um, that are listening to this know about. 
And then my understanding is the Voting Rights Act, because that's a national law, is layered onto uh, what each state has to um, abide by. And so even though we don't necessarily always call it out um, in, in our RCW doesn't call it out, it is something that we, Washington, has to abide by in our redistricting process, correct? And our Voting Rights Act can be much more strengthened than it is and should be. But what, what we do have is still at this point, um, even the maps, many of the maps or most of the maps that have been suggested don't seem to all abide or um, follow the Voting Rights Act is what it appears to be at this point. Is that correct? Yeah. And, it, you know, it goes... Um back to the point about whether we have a, a representative democracy that gives e uh, an equal voice to each person, you know, to um, the, the point that was made earlier about the competitiveness and fairness of the districts, that's up to interpretation. And, you know, one of the interesting things that we learned in the census this year is that communities of color make up more than 37% of Washington state, even though Washington kind of gets this like reputation as a really white, you know, hipster uh, Pacific Northwest uh, state. Um, that's more than people who identify as Republicans in, in Washington state. And so, you know, there was, um, and I think it's, you know, perfectly fine to be honest about it, that the uh, Republican commissioners, both of whom were former legislators, were trying to kind of twist that interpretation to mean, um, well, Republicans have to get half of the half of the legislative districts. So they have to be able to compete to be able to get half of the legislative districts. And, uh, you know, that's actually, you know, not, uh, not, a, not, not a requirement. Whereas, like you said, um, ensuring that you're not violating the constitutionally protected voting rights of people uh, is a requirement um, by, by federal law. And so whenever the, there's been localities like the city of Yakima or the county of Yakima that have been uh, shown to have violated the voting rights, especially of Latinos um, in Yakima County, uh, which we learned in the 2020 census, not just a majority minority county, but majority Latino county, uh, then you could take the state uh, to the state to the Supreme Court. But even though the VRA is weakened, it's still one of those um, things that you can't uh, actually, you know, you can't use race um, to try and gerrymander, and you especially can't dilute the the votes of communities of color. And uh, you know, Margaret grew up in in Central Washington. I think can speak better to the issues that were at play in in um, in those districts. Um, a lot of organizing that's been happening, uh, and the the fact that community was able to draw those districts uh, faster and sooner, and um, somehow not end up violating uh, the voting rights. Well, you know, we had a commission that produced uh, seven maps in total, and five of them um, were proven to have likely violated the Federal Voting Rights Act based on the UCLA analysis. Yeah, and that's why community input was put at the forefront of this, but at the same time wasn't used enough because, you know, just like as you mentioned, not to boast, but like, yes, redistricting justice for Washington did create maps ahead of time on time that did um, ad adhere to the Voting Rights Act, speaking in community. Um, created by community, vetted by folks, experts in the field, um, and people speaking from experience that there's not enough representation in the Yakima Valley, the Latinos specifically um, have not been able to elect the candidate of their choice. And so how do we how do we create a um, a CVAP 
um, citizen voting age population, um, you know, Latino majority district that adheres to the Voting Rights Act that is going to also perform, right? Because 50.02% um, is just not enough commissioners. I'm sorry. So um, that's, yeah, those are some of the conversations talking about or we were talking about and just check mark everything that Kamau was saying as it relates to just the amazing organizing that's been happening um, on the field and folks in Yakima, the partners we've been working with have been incredible and have been leading this work truly. And maybe even just to focus a little bit on there, because, you know, when you're talking about that, that comes from that figure uh, comes from the analysis that was recently run of those late maps, the kind of compromise maps that everybody is supposed to be so happy about, um, or at least the the Seattle Times is, uh, is saying everybody should be happy about. Um, Margaret, do you want to say more about just how thin the margin uh, was uh, to let the commissioners claim that they had actually drawn a majority minority um, by electorate uh, district? Um, I mean, it just, I don't know if I can talk specifically mathematically about the margin, but they were obviously, um, it was, I don't even think it was even in their deliberations at the very end. Um, there was a lot of confusion uh, just in Sarah Augustine's report that did not even mention uh, Yakima as one of those contentious uh, di you know, districts or map negotiations um, in the 11th hour of their, of their caucus dyad conversations. But then, you know, we're hearing from the press and others, um, you know, and some commissioners that Yakima was a priority. So, um, yeah, I think I think the final maps were only majority Latino by 0.02%, like I was mentioning earlier. And, you know, unfortunately, the commission maps are partisan. Um, they were deliberate, uh, deliberated upon, like, very secretly. We talked to them many times, like, from members of the Yakima community and members of the Yakima Nation, um, speaking to them, telling them that they are a cohesive political group and that they wanted to be put together. And that was not the um, ultimate consensus on these final um, illegitimate maps. And so we're really disappointed with just the inability to just adhere to the Voting Rights Act and then also the kind of um, the going back of saying, okay, community input has been at the forefront of our minds, but in reality, like it, that just wasn't the case. I, I wanna take this idea that it's um, three of the four uh, commissioners were uh, former legislators and, uh, and it's a, a political issue um, or at least in Washington's uh, political process in Washington state's law and kind of tear, pull those apart to talk um, first about how do we think uh, that this affected the open um, Open Meetings Act and their violations? Because I was trying to watch that night, and I have to admit, I mean, because they would only come on for 30 seconds at a time, as Kamau talked about earlier, I finally got off and was just on Twitter reading Kamau, reading Melissa Santos, and reading others who were updating on what was going on. And it did sound at some point, maybe like 19 minutes before they voted, and I did watch the voting and did have, I had one vote as definitely before midnight and two after midnight, but I know that there's some thought that there might have been two votes before midnight and one after, and it really shouldn't come down to that. Um, but one thing that I think Melissa Santos alluded to and that I've um, really looked into and, and, and believe myself after is that uh, because they thought that they, it, because there were three former legislators 
on the commission. And because uh, much of the commission staff is legislative staff or, you know, on loan or whatever to the uh, commission that, and because the legislature is, has this ability to go into caucuses that, um, it seemed almost like groupthink over there that they were going into caucuses and thought it was legal or didn't really challenge that. And yet it's not legal under our um, open meeting laws. And it, it seemed like it took a while for them to understand um, how much they violated the public's trust by doing that and wanted to see if first you can talk about that and then if we could talk about the political process itself and how that contrasted to, as Margot has been talking a lot about, the community maps and community input. But first was interested in going into this um, concept that because we did have three out of four of the commissioners, 75 percent, be former legislators, they were acting as if they were still legislators and not subject subject to all the laws that everybody else who serves on any commission or anything is subject to in the state of Washington. Yeah, they kind of thought that they had this uh, five-member legislature and they could just uh, caucus uh, with themselves or, you know, I think ultimately it just ended up being, I think to, in their minds, they obviously thought it was a solution to a very tough problem, which is um, we have a process which on paper is supposed to not, it's supposed to, you know, really just consider how do you reapportion the new uh, population gains or places that have lost population so you can just balance out the scales. And that should be, you know, in most people's minds who aren't, you know, politicals and um, listening to like indivisible podcasts about uh, redistricting minutia, to most people, like, they think like, yeah, how hard should this be? And what they don't understand, and what I think we we miss to understand sometimes is, we are living at uh, in an era of political polarization and partisanship, basically unprecedented since the Civil War. And I think in the commissioner's uh, view, they were trying to balance out the public interest and role that they had um, to craft new maps in a way that uh, engaged everyday people with the obvious partisan motivations that they have, which is in a uh, system where we have winner-take-all elections, where the stakes just keep ratcheting higher and higher election after election, and um, the, you know, the, the balance of what either side kind of views as um, the, the state of the country, you know, hangs the balance, of course, they're going to try to figure out ways to do that horse trading um, in a way that's uh, you know not public. They don't want people to see the sausage making of making sure that they comply with the Voting Rights Act, but they also protect this incumbent over here. And in exchange of doing that, they make this district a little more competitive, and they also draw a little line out to you know whoever uh, you know enjoys a, a nice view but wants to be kept in in a nice district. You know they don't want to keep that a public view, um, and. By doing so, maybe it was legal. I don't even, you know, know necessarily if it, they they were they, um, it was illegal for them to do that. But it definitely violated the spirit of the law, which is like, you know, you gotta you gotta show us what you're voting on. You have to at least be able to describe what you're voting on, um, you know, and and certainly be able to present it. And I think there was a great write up. I don't know if it was Senator Billings' quote, who was saying, you know, obviously 
people took advantage of the broadness and vagueness of the law when um, finishing the redistricting uh, process would obviously mean presenting maps and giving people time to analyze them, for people to have a public discourse about them and give their, their input at the very least. Um, and so, you know, that clearly wasn't there. And so when I think looking forward, I actually came out of this process probably even more skeptical about what a citizens commission could do, you know, if it was completely nonpartisan and there were no legislators and it was just everyday people because you have the same pressures, um, the same pressure would just be operating on a different set of people. And California struggled, a number of states that have citizen commissions um, have really struggled to meet. Some of them have um, uh, broken down. I think uh, there, was, there was a report in the New York Times about Virginia's uh, nonpartisan commission breaking down in tears, um, unable to, to finish their maps and it went to the Supreme Court over there. So it's, it's just a very hard time for this kind of process uh, to happen and is, you know, really shows the big fundamental flaws in having elections where people just get one choice and whoever wins uh, gets 100% of the representation and whoever loses by a couple percent and that whole coalition and all those con constituents get zero representation. I think it's going to make it tough. Margo, did you have thoughts about, um, you know, that whole dyad process and the lack of transparency? No, I don't know if there's anything else to add. You know, I've been, I also have been keeping up. I was very thankful to have, you know, yes, stayed up and been on Twitter, you know, watching Melissa Santos and everyone else can participate in the discourse, which is great because I'm glad there are um, not only dedicated journalists, but, um, you know, other folks that aren't the community keeping, folk, you know, the commission accountable, which is just so has been so important in this entire process, because, you know, it's, it's definitely a coin flip. It's like, we, we, we try to hold them accountable and they listen to our demands or, you know, things get slipped through the cracks, just kind of what happened here. Um, and so, you know, I know a lot of our coalition members and community has been very disappointed again, just repeating, um, the just this process that you know we all stayed up really late and it all came down to 11:59, but not even final agreements were made it was like an agreement on a plan um and it just seems like a lot of um you know how do you say like backsliding and and aversion to like what the law actually is and it's like um okay what is actually communities of interest or what's actually electoral competition what actually means you know like you have to agree at 11:59 or the caucus dyads being like a cover-up for just not meaning it, it's just it just all seems very evasive and and um so yeah that that, that is my opinion um and just some of the the concerns that have been brought up and uh, before we go to what uh, what you'd like to see the Supreme Court do and how you'd like the community engagement to be with the Supreme Court, uh, let's just uh, spend a few minutes like pointing out some of the oddities. I think we've talked a lot about Yakima now, um, but also uh, there were a few situations where somebody's like uh, somebody who had um, challenged and came within a very, very close margin of unseating at same party. So this was uh, not a uh, not a uh, 
red or blue situation, um, but it was blue on blue. And it was in the fifth LD where uh, the challenger who lost by very, very few votes, um, very, very little sliver of margin um, was now drawn out by just like a little, <laughs> like by a few blocks out of that district. Um, I also saw that, you know, suddenly um, a really a former legislator who is a good friend of one of the commissioners, um, again, on the Democratic side, so I know what happens on both sides, uh, was suddenly drawn into a different district that uh, might be more favorable for that former legislator to run in now. Um, we also saw somebody announce today uh, to challenge uh, Congresswoman uh, Schreier in the 8th CD, even though we don't know what the 8th CD is going to look like. Uh, so wondered what your thoughts were on some of these uh, kind of little oddities, if you would call them that, of uh, people who um, look like they were drawn in or out of certain districts for particular reasons at the last minute. You know, you kind of show this first, one of the really striking things, and again, people have to remember, incumbency has nothing to do with redistricting. There's no charge for the redistricting commissioners to try and keep as many incumbents in their place, because at the end of the day, uh, they're supposed to, you know, run to represent um, uh, their districts. They're not supposed to just uh, be conveniently in the same district um, uh, forever. So, you know, set, setting that point aside, it was really surprising that um, really only a handful of uh, incumbents were districted out. Um, and, you know, it, great you point out that example with... Um, you know, in the fifth legislative district where incumbent, you know, Senator Mullet uh, had a working class um, uh, union um, uh, worker challenge them in Ingrid Anderson um, last time I was able to win. And it maybe suggests that uh, the business interests that like having uh, Senator Mullet as the Senate Democratic uh, business liaison um, might have been, you know, putting some pressure or making it known that they would like to keep the situation that way and don't want um, him facing another uh, challenge. This is also the same Mark Marlowe who voted against the capital gains tax um, and is clearly um, someone that a lot of powerful interests would like to keep in, in the state Senate. So you saw, you know, things like that. There's also uh, other things that kind of show you that having a bipartisan commission doesn't mean you have a nonpartisan commission. It means you have a very hyperpartisan commission um, that's very focused on protecting incumbents. So another example, because I think you know, listeners to this podcast are very aware of the gerrymandering that Republicans have done, and it is very, very ugly. For example, you know, Yakima County has been a majority minority uh, county for. Um, this whole decade and has had six Republicans, six white Republicans representing it. Um, and the accommodation been split. And, you know, that's, uh, you know, the kind of gerrymandering that you see being pushed for a lot of times by the Republican Party trying to protect its incumbents and its constituencies for uh, the kind of politics it's developed recently. But you also some, see some other things happening on the Democratic side. So, you know, uh, I think they're very much earnest champions of uh, voting rights. And it is, you know, says something that out of those seven maps that the commission did end up publishing through this whole cycle, the only two that uh, were proven to comply with the Federal Voting Rights Act were ones where the Democratic commissioners went back to uh, 
the, the whiteboard and redrew uh, some of their maps. So I think there's some earnestness. But then you see when they're not mandated to draw voting rights, uh, when the Voting Rights Act doesn't mandate them to draw a majority minority district, sometimes they don't always do it, even though they kind of talk a big game about equity. So if you look in Snohomish County, for example, the Redistricting Justice for Washington Coalition um, that we're a part of managed to show that you could draw a majority minority district in Snohomish County, and it would be the first majority minority district in Snohomish County. Uh, but the commissioners didn't do that, and none of the commissioners uh, really ended up drawing um, that majority minority district uh, that you could draw there. Um, and mainly it's because you have, like, you know, very powerful Democrats like Senator Leas, for example, lives in the waterfront area um, of, of um, the, uh, his district, where there's a lot of wealthy um, white voters there. And uh, if you look at a seatmate, um, Representative uh, Lillian Ortiz Self, she lives uh, over where most people of color live. Um, in that in that densely populated uh, area that's been getting very diverse. And so to draw a majority minority district in Snohomish County would have meant redistricting out um, Senator Leas and uh, I think also the, the other seatmate there. And that was, you know, not something that uh, the commissioners were willing to do. And maybe that suggests something about the uh, just, you know, how, how close to the line um, they were willing to push. But um, I think you saw it kind of uh, all over the maps. Uh, Margo, are there things that you noticed and picked up on on this front? Um, in, in terms of income, well, I think I'll, I can touch on just the just the list for people to know. There were seven incumbents, I believe, that were drawn out of their districts, and that included Senator Bob Hasegawa, um, Representative Shelley Clova, Representative Defoe, who's um, from Yakima or in Sela, I believe, and then Representative Vicki Kraft. Um, and then I think one really important thing to note, because the elections are coming up in 2022, is that um, Congressman Adam Smith, I believe, um, was meant to be or was wanted to be kept in the ninth by the commission. And so they made every single effort to make sure that um, their mission was partisan driven and incumbent um, protected. Um, and it's just really unfortunate because what we were hearing a lot from community is, um, you know, not all greater Seattle, you know, cities are created, you know, equally or are the same that, you know, despite Mercer Island and Bellevue being very different and richer than a lot of South Seattle and South King, you know, they were, they were kept together. And so there's a ton, there was a ton of community voice for drawing the East side out. Um, even by Bellevue residents, you'll see in public testimony that even some Bellevue residents had testified in very much in support of keeping Bellevue uh, out of the ninth congressional. And so, um, we are thinking that, you know, the way the district was um, was drawn, you know, to keep um, Congressman Adam Smith in was was intentional. Um, and so, yeah, that was something. I also noticed that there were a few um, legislative district numbers that at least uh, in the press have uh, continued to be reported as uh, like hot topics, like the 47th, uh, which is where, of course, uh, Joe Fain had been uh, uh, the senator there. And uh, his first map looked, you know, like he had <laughs> drawn it particularly so he could possibly get back in. But another one that concerned me was the 44th, because that one, and I think maybe the 44th and the 37th um, are 
two of the only districts where the senator and both representatives um, are all uh, people of color. And obviously now uh, we had one of the 44th, the 44th senator has now gone to be a secretary of state. But while most of this process was happening, uh, you know, he was a senator there. Um, and uh, so that was concerning to me that there is a um, LD outside of Seattle with uh, represented all by uh, people of color. And yet that seemed to be one of the top uh, priorities was somehow making that a more purple district um, and that the Republicans wanted kind of an opportunity to take that back. And that really concerned me as well. And I noticed uh, there that there definitely felt like there was a racial element and um, less a lessening of one person, one vote. Yeah, and I think especially as you've seen the kind of, I mean, I imagine for them, they've seen these suburbs um, really uh, change in ways that they vote and the issues that they prioritize in a way that they hadn't expected the last uh, few years. So places like, you know, Auburn, Kent, Federal Way, um, these were places where I think before people could get away with uh, some dog whistling um, and, and uh, racial dog whistling uh, to uh, polarize uh, the suburbs. And as they've changed, I think that's where you've seen them get more aggressive, even, you know, beyond the actual uh, incumbents, although that's really telling, especially in the 44th and, and the 47th. But those constituencies who, um, by being split in ways, um, that they're not supposed to have their votes diluted, you know, because all this happens inside of a winner takes all system. And I think that had to have been part of what was motivating the, the, the horse trading strategy there. And it also kind of shows you that, you know, for all the, the, um, the, the definite, uh, uh, tough, um, analysis we've had, especially on how the, the Democrats have conducted themselves, there is an asymmetry between the parties because the the Democratic commissioners, I think we're trying to balance protecting the Democratic incumbents, even though, you know, again, that's not really something they're uh, supposed to do. And um, also, uh, you know, complying with the Voting Rights Act and then trying to also give their their party a partisan advantage. And the Republican commissioners really don't have the same pressures because they're really not all that concerned. And they showed that about um, complying with the um, Federal Voting Rights Act. In fact, you know, the memo that they put out afterwards was alluding to, um, you know, like unequal protections argument for uh, not drawing um, majority Latino districts and, and majority minority districts. So and basically, like, as I understand, like the legal equivalent of a reverse racism argument. And so they really don't have any constraints beyond protecting their incumbents and being as aggressive as possible to give their party um, an advantage that, uh, frankly, like they haven't been able to demonstrate at the ballot box. Um, and I think that's uh, important for people to to know as well and to watch. And I think one of the things that um, we're excited about um, with the process going to the state Supreme Court is and now all that kind of um, hopefully uh, political um, 
nonsense can go to the side and we can just have maps that are fair, particularly to communities that have been historically disenfranchised. Yes, if there's anything I've learned <laughs> from dealing with the Supreme Court for years on uh, the McCleary case uh, is that the Supreme Court is not too happy to have to usually be in a um, political realm. Uh, they're definitely uh, far more interested in uh, determining cases and controversies as they were set up to do. Uh, do we know what kind of process that the Supreme Court will use, or do you have some suggestions about what the Supreme Court should do and the engagement with community that they should have? Yeah, we're, we're kind of in the dark right now. We haven't heard much about what the Supreme Court will be doing in the upcoming weeks. You know, we what we're really hoping is that there's a very robust public uh, feedback process, first and foremost. Um, and, you know, as Kamal mentioned, we, we, we do have trust. We do have trust that, the, you know, these maps, that these maps are resting in the hands of the Supreme Court. Um, I believe uh, Judge Steve Gonzalez is presiding and he has a lot of experience with voting rights um, violations and cases I think as such as those and we do have the diverse state Supreme Court in the country right now um, and so we're really hoping that you know they'll be they'll be listening to community that um, you know we're, we're, we're really happy to that they they were essentially asking for receipts from the Commission you know they did request that they submit you know every single um, decision that was made at what time and hour and so that is kind of a I feel for me at least a glimmer of light that we may be seeing in the upcoming months um, as they'll be having to wrap up the map decision making by April um, of 2022 and so you'll definitely be seeing us um, you know so, you know, having some sort of relationship or, or you know, presence uh, in this process uh, if, if the Supreme Court does allow it. Yeah, I think the other thing um, is, you know, not only is it the most diverse uh, state Supreme Court in the country, um, you know, it also, you know, has uh, Asian and Latino, um, Black, immigrant um, members representing uh, and that's uh, really important. It's actually one of the most diverse uh, bodies we have in, in the state. The other thing is, you know, uh, Chief Justice Gonzalez, um, when he first had to run, um, you know, almost a decade ago, uh, faced a lot of challenges. He ran against a white guy who um, was, uh, you know, the bar did not recommend uh, them. Actually, I think warned against uh, uh, voting for the guy. That guy did not campaign, did not have a website, did not have literature, did not send mail, did not raise money, did not talk to voters, did not go to forums. And still, Justice Gonzalez lost the majority of counties in Washington state. And um, Barreto, uh, Professor Barreto, who uh, is the one who's been doing the Voting Rights uh, Act um, analyses of the redistricting maps, uh, one of his big pieces of research when he was teaching at the UW before he went to the UCLA um, Voting Rights Project was analyzing that race um, with, with Justice Gonzalez. So, you know, this is a court that's really familiar uh, with um, racialized uh, voting patterns, particularly in central Washington. And, you know, even more uh, pointed, I don't think this court is going to be very uh, happy with um, a commission that not only violated the spirit of uh, those public meetings laws. But then that district that Margo's been uh, talking about, that is only majority Latino, um, that only has a majority Latino electorate by 0.02%, that district would have voted for 
Justice Gonzalez's opponent, who again was just a white guy with a white sounding name and almost got elected, uh, almost, uh, you know, uh, kept Justice Gonzalez off the bench um, simply based off of the fact that uh, Justice Gonzalez's uh, last name um, didn't perform as well. Um, and that's a place where that's been proven the case in the city of Yakima, in the county of Yakima. And so I think there's a very low chance that this uh, court goes along with the um, illegitimate compromise maps that the commission put out there. And do you think that they will, I, I agree with that. I, I'm very hopeful and I agree with that and uh, have uh, worked with uh, many of the members of the Supreme Court in different capacities and have just a, a real admiration for them. Uh, do you think that there will be then the opportunity for uh, citizens to either um, give testimony or um, collectively write briefs or how do you think that the Supreme Court may take some feedback? Just how I mentioned earlier, uh, yeah, we're not we're not sure, um, but we, uh, redistricting justice for Washington, we we're prepared and we are meeting with community groups and experts to um, to prepare to file amicus briefs if necessary and uh, engage the Supreme Court in any way that is is possible and legal. So, and I hope that they certainly do open up a process. I think they're one of the next steps everyone has to watch for is if they're going to appoint. And almost certainly they, they'll end up appointing a redistricting master. And that's what most state Supreme Courts do when they're in this position. So who they appoint uh, will be really important. You know, if it's um, a, you know, partisan lawyer, if it's a voting rights expert, if it's, you know, nonprofits like the Brennan Center uh, that work on, on these issues uh, nationally and have a great track record, that would be important for people to watch. I think the, uh, the other thing that... Um, people should be open to is more creative solutions. Because obviously we're gonna be back here in 2031, um, maybe with, with the same kind of commission structure, maybe it's changed around the edges. But at that point, Washington State will be getting a new congressional district. It'll also be getting a new Voting Rights Act um, district, legislative district in uh, around the Tri-Cities. And that will make all of this look uh, like a well-run, well-orchestrated cakewalk. And I think it's important for the commission to try to entertain ideas like proportional representation and multi-member districts that would end winner-take-all elections and also mean that you know you really can't racial, racially gerrymander, you can't um, do partisan gerrymanders because the outcomes would be proportional to um, the the way that voters uh, uh, voice themselves at the ballot box. And, um, you know, those are big uh, radical uh, proposals, but these are also radical times. And I think you'll see um, groups like Washington for Equitable Representation, Fair Vote Washington, More Equitable Democracy that work on those issues, uh, put forward some of those creative ideas to make sure that we're not back here, um, you know, relitigating the same issues in 10 years. Thank you so much, Kamau and Margo. I feel like I understand the whole, the whole process much better now. And I've been reading all the articles and uh, going to League of Women Voters uh, discussions about all of this all along. But this has been just really, really helpful. And um, uh, yeah, no, thank you very much for all your time, all your expertise and all your leadership. I, I really appreciate your expertise and leadership here. And thank you for sharing it with us tonight.